Okay, let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful that you've brought us together on this morning, and thank you that you have already fed us with your word and with the with the reminder of our baptisms that we've been brought into union with you by your own death and resurrection. You've you've claimed us already, and I pray that you will let that um, good word seal itself on our hearts and our lives and help us today as we continue on in Philippians give uh, give us wisdom and insight and understanding and we know that if that happens it will be because of your kindness to us in Jesus name amen, amen. All right, so we're, we're in Philippians 2 if you have phones or with Bibles on them or anything that you want to look at that'd be fine and for those of you who are kind of just in today we We've been in this series for a while, and I, I think we only have one or two more weeks, actually. Um, so, you know, I sh- we'll just call it a course on Philippians one and two, <laughs> and just, you know, cut cut bait. Uh, last week or two weeks ago, we've had a lot of sort of bumps along the way, but two weeks ago we we spent our time in Philippians chapter two, looking at. Um, the whole of the first 11 verses, but primarily the first four verses, talking about um, what really is a, it's a thorny issue. It's, it's an issue that's, that there, there are rocks that can, you can crash on as you think about the implications of what it means to, be, to call us into the imitation of Christ. You remember we talked last week about, at least when I was a youth director, I don't know if you knew that, I was a youth director for five years, that's, that means I'm going to heaven. Um, when I was a youth director for five years, you know, that was the time when the WWJD bracelets were really popular. You know, what would Jesus do? Um, and that was based off of a, a classic Christian novel um, from, I think, the early part of the 20th century by a gentleman by the last name of Sheldon, I believe, called In His Steps. You know, and the question was raised in the life of a local congregation, what would happen if in our church everyone began to ask, what would Jesus do before they did something? And I, I was, you know, kind of in the world of Reformation theology. I still very much am. That, that, that's, if you cut me, I kind of bleed that. That's how I think. Um, and, and, and so there was a lot of reaction against the whole WWJD movement, uh, you know, to, um, no longer know what would Jesus do, but something, or what would Jesus do, but something like, uh, WHJD, uh, uh, so what has Jesus done? And that was the, that was sort of, in other words, don't, don't look to yourself, look to what the accomplished work of what, of what Jesus has already done. And, you know, I've kind of continued to reflect on this, and, and I do believe that sometimes we get put on the horns of a false dilemma when we think in these terms. Um, and, and both need to be affirmed. And Paul does this here for us in Philippians 2. I think Paul forces us to think about the objective character of our salvation and the subjective appropriation of that salvation. And I think, and I don't know where all of you are from. I know where some of you are from, like you, uh, and I know the world that I'm from. And the world that I'm from, I, I would imagine if there was a kind of leaning one way or the other, the, the leaning was probably more toward the kind of subjective appropriation of what Jesus has done in my life. I'm, I'm trying to put this thing into some sort of actualized mode of being. That, that's, I, what do I do? What do I, how do I live? How do I pull myself up by my moral bootstraps? And that, that was kind of tended to be the emphasis of the gospel's work to the, 
And not intentionally, I don't think, but maybe to the downplaying of the objective character. Um, and, you know, and there are others who might sort of emphasize the objective character without thinking about the implications of the gospel and how the gospel leads us into new modes of being. I don't know if you've heard the story or not. I, 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 this is actually, um, uh, true. A Karl Barth theologian that I do like a lot. Um, and I, and I, and as I get older, I like him less. I'll just tell you that. Um, but I do, I have a lot of time for Karl Barth. Um, Karl Barth came to the United States in 1965 or 64. He died in 1968. So he, he, he came and, and, um, when he was a very old man in his 80s to do some lecturing at Princeton Theological Seminary. Um, and he, and also, this is a kind of a side, uh, point of interest, also because he really wanted to see Civil War battle sites. I don't, I don't think we understand, well I shouldn't say that, I don't know if we do or not. I'm not sure, I'm, I'm, I'm as fully cognizant of how fascinating the Civil War is to the whole sort of European mind. You know, Winston Churchill, I think that's like one of the greatest contests ever fought in the history of the Western world. I mean, so, you know, the, the, the Europeans were fascinated by the Civil War. Karl Barth was one of them. I mean, he was, he was well versed in, in sort of Civil War history and facts and actually there's a picture of him firing a musket at Gettysburg. I mean he he was just into it. Um so I, I mean people say he came to do theological lectures between us. I think he really came to see Gettysburg and and uh Appomattox and I mean that's why he came. Um anyway, while while he was here, this was also during sort of the heyday of, of Billy Graham and, and the and the and the revivals of Billy Graham. And someone asked Carl Bart in a very the kind of question that you and I would ask each other, you know, when did you get saved? Which is a kind of fascinating thing to ask a German theologian. And he said, when did I get saved? Well, I guess around the year A.D. 31, somewhere in there. Uh, you know, when Jesus died and then was raised again. That's, I guess, when I got saved. And and um, there's something there's something right about that. I'm not sure we... I mean, I'm not sure how you process that. I, I, I know how I, I kind of continue to think about this myself. But you know, when we're when we're regenerate, regenerated, when our eyes are opened um, to the reality of the gospel, we we are regenerated to something that already is. I mean, it's it's been accomplished for us. Um, a theologian that I sort of read in seminary a lot, John Murray, Scottish theologian, wrote a book called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Now, redemption's been accomplished and applied for us in the person and work of Jesus. And when, when the Holy Spirit blows over our hearts and we see it and we're opened our eyes, like we heard so beautifully from the story, the Tolstoy short story this morning, when now we see we're awakened to something that already is. I didn't make that happen. I'm awakened now through the fullness of the reality of what already is, who I truly am as one who's chosen and safe in Jesus, I'm, I'm awakened to that, um, to that reality. So, um, that's what we talked about with Philippians 2, chapter, verse 1. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. How, Paul? By being of the same mind. With whom? With one another in, in the community of faith. Having the same kind of love, being in full accord and of one mind. I mean, he's talking to a local congregation here, and he's encouraging them to live into a spirit of unity. 
Uh, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. This is, I mean, Paul is calling you and me um, to a self-reflection and critical self-reflection. Something, frankly, that I think, if you're anything like me, and maybe, maybe you're not, but I think humanity tends to be kind of similar, if you're anything like me, if left on autopilot, you don't do self-critical reflection. Yeah, just don't, you don't do that. Um, so, someone sent a, a piece around this week and some email chain that I'm a part of from the Harvard Business Review about this um, this uh, uh, life coach, uh, entrepreneurial coach, um, who, who requires these sort of high-rolling entrepreneurs that he engages to spend 30 minutes to an hour a week in self-reflection, critical self-reflection. And he said he's been so stunned by the fact that they, they don't, they can't do it. And then, and then he says, all right, well, we, we meet together on Saturday for two hours. You just take 30 minutes of our time together, do some critical self-reflection, and then let's get together and talk about it after you do that. And, and the, the entrepreneurs sit there and they go, well, um, what, what, what do I do? How do, how do, how do I do that? Um, I just don't think we're, you know, left to ourselves, we don't do critical self-reflection very often. And this is what Paul is calling on the people at Philippi to do. Think about others before yourselves. You enter into a reflection on who you are. And how does he build this? If you remember from two weeks ago, I, I, I made a kind of argument that verse 5 of chapter 2 is Janus-faced. It's looking backwards and looking forward. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's the only location where this mind is to be found, is in Jesus Christ. And when one looks to Jesus Christ and recognizes who Jesus Christ is, there is a path and a way to follow in. I think that's what Paul is saying here. And what does that path look like? Others, esteeming others, being of one mind, being quick to let go of, of my territory for the sake of the better good of our community. These are these are hard challenges. Very easy to say in a kind of sedentary context that we're in now. Much harder to live out, I think, on the sidewalk. So that's what we talked about um, last week. All right, the sort of notion of the imitator, two weeks ago, of the imitation of Christ. This week, though, I want to look primarily at the at the second half of Philippians chapter two, and this is one of the great hymns of the Christian church. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Verse six: Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men, humanity. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Paul begins with the challenge. He begins with the call to critical self-reflection in the community of faith to be marked by the mind of Jesus. And then from that, he moves into a demonstration of what the mind of Christ actually looks like. What, 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 this is the moving, I'm not going to like this in a week, but this is the moving from WWJD to the WHJD, what has Jesus done part. That's the kind of move that you have going on here. And what is it that Jesus has done? Well, he's going to tell you what Jesus has done. This is what Jesus has done for us. He was God. 
Now, think about that. Who being in the very form of God. Not form of God like... Um, well, okay, Let, let's, let's get technical for a second. Do you realize that in the 4th century, the debates over the identity of God, the Trinity, the stuff that we confess, every time we come together for communion and we do the Nicene Creed, you have this sort of confession about what it means for Jesus to be God. Very God of very God. Of one substance with the Father. That language there, of one substance, is a fancy Greek term, homoousios. There's one little letter. It's an iota. It's a little I in Greek that a lot of theologians in the 4th century argued for, namely not homoousios, but homoiousios. So not of the same substance as homoousios, but homoiousios of a similar substance. Right. And I'm just about the great controversies of the fourth century that were fought over with battles. I mean, when we say glory to the Father and to the Son as it was in the beginning is now and will be forever, world without end, that's a fourth century fight song for Athanasius and Trinitarian theologians. I mean, just think, think trombones, right? That's what you hear with that. I mean, this was a fight song over an iota. Over homoousios versus homoousios. He was of the same form of God. To talk about God's godness and the being of God requires that we talk about Jesus of Nazareth in the same breath. Of, of the same substance. Whatever it means for God to be God and to use any verbs to describe God's godness requires that we talk about Jesus in the very same way. That's Trinitarian logic. And Paul is breathing it here, right? He's of the same form of God. And yet, he did not count that authority, the glory, the priority as something to be held onto, but he relinquished his rights. Now, I think this is very important because there's been a lot of debates on this text did not relinquish one iota of his divinity. He didn't make himself a lower divine being. By the way, that's impossible. You don't do that. You know, it's like being, I've heard some of my, my students sometimes say things kind of like, my, you know, we're, we're, I think we're pregnant or something. I said, well, you know, a, there's no like little being pregnant. You know, it's like, you're either a lot pregnant or you're not. You know, it doesn't kind of work that way. Um, it's the same with divinity. There's no sort of, there's no diminution here. You're either divine or you're not. That's the way at least which the New Testament world works here. So he was he didn't relinquish any of his divinity. He retained the full panoply of all the powers and attributes that come with divinity, but he relinquished what the, the claim toward its priority, the claim toward its glory to do what? To take on the form of a servant. What does it mean for him to do this? Well, look at this verse here. This is, I think, important where a little language might help. He emptied himself. Now, this is very important. He did not empty himself of his divinity one iota. But he emptied himself, and now the next clause is going to tell you how he did that emptying. He emptied himself by taking something on. He emptied himself by becoming a human being. He humbled himself from the exalted heights of the very throne room of God by taking on the simple 
human form that you and I possess with skin and bones and blood and tissue. That's how He emptied Himself. Um, John chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word of God, who was God, became flesh. I mean, I, that's, by the way, everything in our faith trades on this. I mean, this is at the core of Christian faith. He took on that which He was not. Now, can, can we just get a little theologically technical and then we're going to press into this a little more. Here's the theological technicality. There was never a time when the second person of the Trinity was not. Now, there was never a time when the Son of God was not. He is begotten eternally from the Father. There's never a time when He was not. But there was a time, if we're using our frame of reference, and I realize this sort of presses into mystery land, but if we use our temporal frame of reference, but there was a time when He was not a man. So that's what gives it. There's never a time when the second person of the Trinity was not God. But there was a time when the second person of the Trinity was not a man. And He became a man. He became flesh. And in His becoming flesh, that's the self-emptying and the self-giving of God. Now, if, I, if I can appeal to my buddy again, Karl Barth. Barth says, this is how God neutralizes and obliterates the pride of humanity. Our buildings of the Tower of Babel, which is what we do by instinct. This is how God obliterates our pride by emptying Himself, by humbling Himself, by taking on flesh and humility, and not just doing that. You see, this is like that. That's sort of a baseline. He became. He emptied Himself by taking on flesh, becoming a, a servant, and He was obedient. What unto death, and not just any kind of death, even the death. That's on a cross. Um, there's a gal who writes for the New Yorker, um, and she's just published a book, and I can't remember the name of the novel. Some of you lit people might know this, but her, her name is, she's, she's a Turkish American gal, Alan Boutef. Does anybody know who I'm talking about? Um, anyway, she grew up in a kind of secular uh, t uh, Turkish home in New York. Um, and she was interviewed recently on um, on Fresh Air with Terry Gross, and and, um, and Terry Gross asked her about religion. She said, "Well, I kind of grew up in a secular home, and and we were, I learned to respect religion." But she said, "I did go through a kind of period where I was interested in religion because a lot of my peers were at my sort of boarding school sort of setting, and and I and I and I even had a cross one time that I wore, and my father asked me, "Why are you wearing that instrument of human torture around your neck?" All right. Um, and then the interview went on. She doesn't claim religion anymore. But that, that's, you know, that a lot of you are wearing, you know, instruments of torture around your neck. The, the dad's right on that. Um, the, the death on the cross, and I, we don't need to get into sort of specifics here necessarily, but it was the most humiliating kind of death. I think Spartacus, right, the slave revolt, in the early decades before the turn of, into the AD period of our time, you know, this great slave revolt. Well, what did they do to the slaves? They, they crucified them along the Apian Way all the way into Rome so that they could be a kind of public demonstration to all the slaves in the Roman Empire. This is what happened when you revolt. 
Um, you, you, you died in a public form that was long and excruciating. And, you know, not to be indelicate, and you died in the nude, which was a, which was a moment of, again, that's what conquerors did to those whom they conquered to humiliate them in the ancient world. They forced them to walk in sort of procession either in their nudity, that's a big theme, by the way, the minor prophets, and of course, here's Jesus, you know, hanging uh, on the cross, and, and of course our pictures are delicate, they don't really do that, but in, in the nude. It was, it was humiliating. I mean, you, you, to die in front of the people that you love and you know and, and the people who hate you in that way, it was ultimate humiliation. So, I mean, we often focus on the agony, right? Like Mel Gibson's Passion of the, of, of the Christ. I mean, that's on the agony in the sense of just the... I mean, it's very bloody, very medieval. That's what Gibson went after. And that's, that's true. But the, the humiliation of it is, I think, what we often lose. But that's what Paul wants you to see. Paul, Paul doesn't talk about... You know, the crown of thorns and blood streaming down his head and the, and the eyes disfigured and, and, and the, and the, you know, the, the cat of nine tails on the back. Paul, I mean, I'm sure Paul's aware of all of that. But he wants you to know that what he went through was humiliating. A public humiliation. And that's how, think about what Paul's telling you here. That's how God emptied himself by taking on flesh and dying in that kind of way for you and for me, and this is what Paul's saying, and he's left you a path in which to walk. He's showing you something about the ways in which you demonstrate the presence of Christ and the power of the gospel in your community by walking in that kind of self-releasing, self-giving um, hum humility and even humiliation. Well, look, look, look here. Paul's not done, though. Humiliation leads to exaltation. This is a great sort of Christian theme. It's our theme as well. Verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Um, if you're looking for a proof text, right, um, to, to prove, and of course, proof texts are a funny thing, right, because proof texts only work with people who believe in the authority of the Bible. Otherwise, like, well, thank you for sharing that verse that means nothing to me. Um, but so, I mean, this is the kind of a Christian conversation here. But if you're looking for biblical warrant for the divinity of Jesus Christ, it doesn't get better than these two verses right here. This is profound. He handed over to him the name that is above every name. And now Paul, by a kind of interesting allusion to the Old Testament, is going to demonstrate for you how profound that handing over of the name actually is. Because now he doesn't even tell you this. He doesn't tell you. But I, I'll tell you. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 45. And Isaiah chapter 45, if you know anything about Isaiah, and I'm sure a lot of you do, Isaiah, as a prophet, is very clear that Yahweh, Jehovah, the named God of Israel, does not share His glory or His name with anyone. And Isaiah chapter 45 is a central chapter in that argumentation from the prophet. I am Yahweh, there is no other. 
my name is is revered and holy, it goes to no other. And then it goes on to say, and at the name of Yahweh, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. What For what? For the salvation of the whole world. That's your homework. You can read Isaiah 45 this week. That's how Isaiah 45 ends. How does salvation expand to the whole world? Because they recognize Yahweh and they bow the knee. Everyone bows the knee. And every tongue confesses that He is Yahweh. He's Jehovah. And here's Paul telling you right here, that that verse in Isaiah 45 talking about Israel's God and the unique identity of Israel's God is actually as well talking about Jesus of Nazareth. I can't talk about the identity of Yahweh without talking about the identity of Jesus. Every knee, every tongue confessing that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is Jehovah. That whatever I say about the the named God of Israel who revealed Himself in a burning bush, who split the seas apart, who did all these miraculous gifts for the people of Israel to make them be who they were in His self-giving love, all that you talk about the God of Israel, you have to use the same verbs, the same language, the same identity language to talk about Jesus of Nazareth. All that's been handed over to Him because look at Him walking in humility and giving of Himself in divine self-abnegation for you and for me. It's incredible. It's an incredible phrase. Can I say one more thing about this? Um, And then we'll be done. Um, This whole name thing, it's got its fangs in me, right? Um, I've been buried uh, this past week um, in Hosea chapter 12. Can we talk about that for just a few seconds? Seems disjointed, but hopefully I'll tie it together. Hosea chapter 12 uh, is a fascinating text because Hosea refers to the wrestling of Jacob with the divine being at the river Jabbok in the middle of the night. And here's and it's a text that's really complicated because we don't know what who what subjects are with what verse. It's, it's it's a challenge. But it says this: In the womb, he grabbed his brother's heel. When he was old, he wrestled with God. He strove with the angel and he prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. Jacob, seeking the favor of the one who he's prevailed over because now he recognizes who he is. And then here's the next verse. Yahweh, think Old Testament, Israel's God. Yahweh, God, Zabaoth, the Lord of hosts. Yahweh is his name. Hosea chapter 12, verse 5 or verse 6, depending on which translation you're looking at. What Hosea is doing is he's reading the Jacob story and the, and, the, and the Moses story in Exodus 3 together and he's bringing them together. Because that, the Lord is his name, is a direct quote of Exodus chapter 3, verse 15. It's a direct quote. And this is why, this is the kind of the boom moment for me this week, thinking about that as it relates to Philippians 2. You know what's often forgot in the Jacob story when Jacob is wrestling with God at the river Jabbok, right? He's got, I mean, he's got God in a full Nelson. God says, let me go. Vampire stuff. Got the sun's about to come up. It's a weird story, right? And, uh, and Jacob says, nope, I'm not going to let you go till you bless me. And then God touches his hip, right? And now Jacob realizes, oh, this thing must be staged, okay? Because I can't walk straight anymore. And he just touched me. So this is no just, this is no man. This is a divine being. And that's exactly what Hosea tells us and what Genesis tells us. 
And then we, we often just go, I, I didn't know what to do. I just sort of gloss right over it, move past it. Then Jacob says, and what is your name? You remember what God says to Jacob? What is that to you? And then they goes on in the story. Boom, boom, boom. Do you know the next time in the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, when that question is asked? The next time that question is asked is Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. What is your name? And what does God say to Moses? I'm giving you a paraphrase. Now is the time for me to answer Jacob's question. That wasn't the time. Because my name is tied to this redemptive moment. When you see the sea split, when you see the river turn to blood, when the frogs are everywhere, when I give you the locust plagues, Exodus chapter 12, Exodus chapter 7, why do I give you these plagues? So that you will know who I am. You will know my name. When you see all that happen, you're going to know the character of my name. That wasn't, Jacob was not in that moment. That wasn't his question to ask yet. But Moses, it's your question to ask. It's as if Hosea is telling the people that he's speaking to in the northern kingdom kind of what Jesus said to the disciples. You remember the prophets in the Old Testament and Abraham? They yearned to see this day. But they didn't get to see it. It's as if Hosea is saying, hey, remember Jacob? The one who modeled for you repentance that I'm calling you into? Jacob yearned to know about what you know about in the traditions of the Exodus. The revelation of the name. They yearned for that. And now here we go in Philippians chapter 2, and Paul is telling us all that name stuff where God reveals Himself and gives Himself to be known in particular redemptive moments. Seas, a splitting apart. Um, tombs being bust through. Right? That's my name. That's who I am. And here Paul tells us, you want to know the fullness of the name and the identity of God? Then you look at Jesus of Nazareth, very God, a very God who humbled Himself for you. Follow ye Him. That's what Paul's telling us. So there's really some fascinating stuff that I think going on in the Bible with the whole sort of name theology. And I think Paul is leaning into it here in in Philippians chapter 2. All right? What time is it? We got some time for questions. Who wants to fire it around? What do you want to ask? What do you want to bat around? Anything? Questions? Hose. I think this is something maybe that Christians would do well to learn, you know, from some of the best of the Jewish traditions on this. And I, I holy fear. Yeah. And 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 a respect of the name. You know, this is one of the funny things about the Hebrew 
Oh, I've got time. I'll show you this. Oh, look at all that. Oh, that was from that was from our lesson. How that stay up for two weeks? Is there any chalk around here? It's too analog. Get that smart word on the other side. Is that what it is? So here is. Uh, well, let me get some room here. Here's the the Hebrew name. Right, that's three. That's four letters. Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey, and there's a whole tradition of sort of Jewish thought that this particular letter here is kind of a magic letter. I mean, it's just a fascinating. And we, we, I guess, in most of the sort of English-speaking world, think of it as Jehovah. And you go, well, how how do we get Jehovah? Well, this is think Y H W H. Okay. Go, oh, by the way, going this way. Um, you read right to left. So um, the, the tradition, the, the Jewish tradition, is you take the vowels from the word Adonai. Adonai, right? And you add them in here. Yah, uh, yah ha, um, va. And that's how you get uh, Jehovah. Right? So that's where we get the word Jehovah. Most like sort of modern scholars, they kind of they poo-poo the idea of Jehovah, and they'll argue for saying it like this, Yahweh. But can I just go ahead and tell you that itself is as much a construct as Jehovah. It's a, it's, it's a construct. Why? Because of what Sarah Jane's talking about? Because of a long tradition of such respect for the name, it was never spoken. It couldn't be spoken. Matter of fact, if you watch, you know the Gibson movie. Um, and we watched it recently. The Gibson movie is all done in Aramaic and Latin. So when the Romans are speaking, it's in Latin. And that's a, that was a bold choice, I think, Gibson made. But I think, I think it got at something. And you'll, I, I sort of noticed whenever they would talk about the Lord, the Pharisees, the disciples, any Jew, it was always Hashem, which is the Aramaic term for the name. In other words, they, they identified the name as the name. They wouldn't actually say it, Jehovah Adonai. They would just say the name as it stood in for that right there. Why? Out of such deep, I think, respect for the power and the uniqueness of that of that name. Um, so even in my Hebrew classes at Beeson, you know, I'll tell the students when we when we get to that, let's let's follow in this. You're not going to get struck by lightning if you don't. All right, um, but let's say Adonai when we get there and not try to vocalize that. We tend to do that. Um, because I do think there is something about this sort of respect for the divine name. And can I share one other thing? Of course. When, um, and I can't tell you exactly where it is. My mind's not great. But anyway, where, uh, where the Lord was asked his name and he said, I am. Yes. And I thought, I am, I am. And then I read one time early on when my eyes were open. I am whatever you need me to be. Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. And then it takes this I am. Yeah. And when we call on the Lord, yeah. He is whatever we yeah. need Him to be. Yeah, it's good. And of course, you know, when Jesus says that, and when He was arrested in the garden, that they all, you know, where are you? And He says, I am. Are you he? I am. Ego a me. And they all fell. Why? Because that's 
that name. I mean, that's Jesus, that's Jesus saying, "I'm that," and they and the power of it threw them back on their on the ground. <laughs> Something, yeah. All right, Lord, thank you so much for a text like Philippians two. We we just scratched the surface, um, and yet, Lord, it's so profound to think that you, the Holy One of Israel, would enter into our world and become a human in that kind of humility. There's no gods of the ancient world or the Greco-Roman world who do that. And it's just incredible, Lord, to think about how you come into our world in this way. And we're grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.